the project. Kuwait. Learn. Hey everybody, welcome to the project. And I'm throwing a curveball at everybody tonight. We had Dr. Vera, the author of Food Junkies. That's right, Vera Tarman, yes. World-renowned author. Dr. D got to geek out with her That's psychology right. questions. That's right. That's Megan, right. her gut health. I mean, you guys were talking about gut flora. I was just playing around on my phone. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I, no, I'm joking. I love the way she calls herself a food addict in recovery. I just love it. She's so honest. The conversation was flowing. It was an amazing interview, actually. I think that's the biggest takeaway of this is understanding the stigmas of addiction in general, yes. but the differentiation between um, disordered eating and food addiction, um, what that exactly is, the whole social side of it, the personal side of it, and some really good tips to give you some light at the end of the tunnel on how to overcome maybe some of those things that you're confused about. Is it an addiction or is it just disordered eating or is it stress? I think she really gives some good tips to think about. And I think all her stories actually are amazing because you can relate to it no matter what. And also it can bring light to people that are food addict that don't really know that they're food addict. And the comparison she makes with, you know, substance abuse and addiction was amazing. So, And guys, she gets into some of the science behind it, especially when it comes to insulin sensitivity. And she talks about ghrelin. She talks about everything that goes on with your body from a chemical perspective and a hormonal perspective. So I get into some of those geeky questions as we were calling them. <laughs> and, and we did the fluffy questions. I know you guys did the fluffy questions, especially. <laughs> Meg, she sucked it up this time. But it was great. I think it's because I already know the geeky stuff. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was great. And just kind of like bear with us because we had some connection problems here and there. But all in all, it was a great episode. And I loved when she talked about her book at the end and the stories behind her book and what went into that and why she wanted to relate it to the oh. readers. That was great. So give it a listen. And guys, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and you get a chance to win a uh, limited edition Project Kuwait t-shirt. Yes, yes. I want one. I want one. You guys aren't getting one. <laughs> All this and more in today's episode. One of my now favorite guests on this show, Dr. Vera, right? Dr. D, I'm, I'm assuming you and Meg too love this. Yeah, that's right. It's right up your alleys. One gut expert and one head expert. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> where our paths cross. <laughs> I know, right? So, Dr. Vera, I think you could do a better job at kind of, you know, throwing your credentials out there and, you know, letting people understand what your background is. Mm. The medical director of a treatment center in uh, Toronto, Canada called Renison, <clears throat> which is a treatment center for drugs and alcohol. And I've been working in the field of addiction medicine for uh, over 20 years. I've been a doctor for, I guess, now 30 years plus, but an addictions doctor for about 20 years. And in the last five to six years, myself first, and then the uh, program that I work for got very interested in the whole idea of treatment for food addiction. Um, the most interesting in the first couple of chapters of your book was going through about we don't relate food addiction on the same level as you typically do with like alcohol and drugs. And it was just really interesting that fact that was thrown out there right away of people that kind of transition from one to the other, you know, the former alcoholics that then get into a food addiction or someone with the bypass surgery who then goes into a food addiction or bulimia and alcoholism and the relationship between that, I found that to be really shocking. Yeah. That's really what happened to me. I work with new recovery, like people are coming in and, and I see them for the first month and they put down their drug and all of a sudden their hands are full of candies and chips and pop. 
And uh, I would say to them, is this your pattern? And they'd, they'd say, no, I never ate like this before. What's wrong with me? Then my uh, antenna went up and I started asking people, what about before you picked up your drug? And what was your food pattern like? And I would say at least 40% of the people, especially women, would say, you know, I actually think I ate like this before. And then I started to drink or I started to use another drug, even cigarettes. I started to smoke cigarettes. Then my food was under control and I thought that that wasn't a problem. But now it is again. Yeah. So to me, when it's in my face, connecting the dots was not hard. What was hard was when I started telling my dietary colleagues, and Megan, I'm sure you can relate to this, the diet nutritionists who advise about food, when I started telling them about the addictive nature of some of the foods that we're eating, that's where there was a stonewalling, not with the clients. Of what they were kind of advising. Yeah. I have a quick question, and it's kind of jumping into the whole yep. conspiracy theory thing here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, we know that big tobacco, right, created addictive cigarettes. They knew they were highly addictive when they created them. And then I've read multiple articles saying that what some of the, a lot of the large tobacco companies purchased food companies, some of the biggest food companies. Do you believe that they're creating these hyper palatable foods that are so extraordinarily addictive, especially to children? Oh my God. Yes. I'm inclined to say this. That's not a conspiracy theorist. It's just plain commercial. Once you start reading How can you not make that connection? The fact that we know, my guess is that you are leading to this. We have people who are food engineers deliberately making foods to be, well, you said hyper palatable. Let's just call it what it is, which is addictive. I think that that's a deliberate intent. I think most people who have read anything uh, beyond just the superficial are coming to that conclusion now. Just a matter of legal and economic forces to change the tide. Right. Well, you talked about some of those clinicians and things kind of almost guiding their clients on a destructive path as like far as the food goes. Like what were those recommendations or what do you think like the intention was with that? Like what were they hoping they would fix and then what was created out of it? Well, you know, when I think about conspiracy theory, this is where I think it goes. Like I think that there's enough now in the media about the food industry and the connection with big tobacco that that's not so outlandish anymore. Mm-hmm. But in the medical world, I might be faulted, but I don't know if I am in in the sense of, is there some kind of, not conspiracy, but a similar economic uh, motivation to recommend foods that perpetuate diabetes so that we can keep a medical industry going, like a pharmaceutical industry for diabetes going, as opposed to the more obvious solution, which is to stop eating the things that are causing diabetes. Mm-hmm. That's so that true. Are causing the need for gastric surgery. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't need to do the extent of bariatric surgery if we initially first got rid of foods, changed the diet that the nutritionist is suggesting, because they're suggesting, yes, you can eat a certain amount of carbs and a certain amount of sugar, basically toxins, yeah, addictive toxins, and it's up to you to control it. Well, of course, that's not possible. Well, and that's that's something big that's going to touch on, especially in Kuwait. But we also have the fastest growing population in diabetes in the world. Yeah, and it yeah. fits because you also have a very high population of obesity, not even overweight, but obese. Like I think yeah. that's a figure of 40%. That's obese. That's, that's more than it's, the U.S. And most people here will not think about, they will think about a surgery before they can really think about their relationship with food. And I think this is why yeah, it's so important it. that we're having this because a lot of our listeners are also on this part of the world. You know, I would like to ask you, what would be the best way to be able to explain it to a society that 
everything they do surrounds food. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm assuming it would be the same thing as, you know, Hispanic families or, but here it seems like there's nowhere yeah. you go. Everyone wants to meet with you. They'll meet at a cafe where there is sweet. And when you go to yes. the houses and it's culturally inappropriate, if you say, no, I don't want, but, but what no. I, I know. And what I found out is that, you know, as a clinician here, you know, I was fascinated by a lot of the stuff that you're saying, because it really does touch home. Because here, for example, a mom will encourage a daughter to be eating. You know, Ellen was my favorite. So the idea is that when you have when you have home and the mom is telling you to eat, but then they create these obese children. And then when they are 15, 16, mom is worried that she might not get married, the girl, and then recommends yeah. plastic surgery, for example, or recommends these geriatric kind of... Yeah. And so it's, yes. there's always a struggle. Yes. So me as a clinician, trying to educate them, and I mean, your book was very educational for me. I'm going to use it a lot. But how do you tell someone you. that what yes. you have is an addiction as of like you're having an addiction of alcohol and drugs? People still don't understand it is the same. No. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. And that's a problem that we have as well. I think probably less than you do, but it's still a problem. Only because my guess is we're a little bit further ahead on the discussion about what to do in terms of addiction and stuff. I mean, this has to be a policy decision. You are trying to work with individual people. You are one person and probably unique and unusual in your voice talking to people. It has to be global or societal because once that daughter walks into her, like, yeah, like you said, a family event, and says, well, I can't eat this stuff because it'll make my diabetes worse. I'm yes. glad you brought up a little bit of the science there because I have a couple of scientific questions that I kind of yes, understand, yes, but I was hoping you can clarify for the audience. One was on yes. uh, the dopamine D2 receptors that you talk about yes. in the book. I was hoping you can clarify what that is in terms of addiction. And then I have a follow-up yes. question in terms of insulin sensitivity in the foods that we consume. And there are new products coming yes. out like the Lumen and... There's like an insulin reader where it tells you if you eat an orange, if you have a spike in insulin, if it's good for you or bad for you. So can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? So really you, what you're asking me about are the sort of two drives to eat and how they can be um, mismanaged. Exactly. And there's the hormonal model, which is true. Like both of them are true and they actually work together. And as much as you will get the medical community to agree, we will all agree that there is a hormonal drive to eat that can get mismanaged, and that's primarily through the insulin effect. So if you eat too much sugar, the insulin drives, and then that creates obesity and creates more hunger. I mean, it creates its own drive to eat. The highly dense, sugar-dense, fat-dense foods, when I say fat, I mean sugar with fat. And the foods that we eat are engineered to make that already mismanaged. So you don't even have to be addicted to food to be eating too much. You just eat too much because you're having a hypoglycemic crash. You've eaten a lot two hours ago. Now you're crashing. You need more sugar to feel normal. So you're going to eat more to feel normal. And we know you over time, a person becomes insulin, uh, not sensitive to their insulin. And eventually the condition of diabetes occurs. You talked about the yes. overuse of insulin receptors and their effects. And you also discussed leptin a little bit. Can you talk about yeah. that? Can you explain that? Right. It was it was really explained very beautifully in the book. Yeah. So Okay. So uh, when, when I talk about, this is now still just the hormonal model, because there's also the addictive model, just the hormonal model. The ideal way that we should eat, the way that our bodies are in terms of, if you want to call it paleo hunting and gathering or whatever, the way our bodies were evolved to eat. 
Uh, we're supposed to eat real food, not processed food, but real food, uh, which means that there's a certain amount of sugar in fruit and vegetables and whatnot. And our body, with the amount of insulin that's required to transport the sugar to the brain and whatnot, it's all good. It's, it's great. Uh, my hunger cue is a hormone called ghrelin or ghrelin, depending on who you talk to. And that hunger is, if you want to think of a scale of zero starvation and a hundred uh, stuff, that's around a four or something. You're hungry, but you're not starving. And we think about food serenity, food sobriety. You want to be in the realm of between four when you're hungry and seven when you're full, not stuff, but seven when you're full. That's So that's ghrelin is four and leptin is the uh, hormone of satiety that is released from the gut about 20 minutes after you eat. That's like my number one habit that I just stress with everybody before, like focusing on really what you need to be eating. It's just like slow down and it's for that exact hormonal reason. It's done in five minutes because it's already pre-processed. So we've got ghrelin on one end and and leptin on the other, and it's a perfect match. It works great. And insulin is, uh, it's all perfect. When a person is eating processed food, you know, on the glycemic index, the you end up having a bolus of more sugar than your body is easily managed, then basically the whole insulin that becomes um, involved. So insulin has its own um, hunger cue, and it's the kind of hunger of when you're starved or ravished and, and you're, the fuel is low, and if I don't eat, I will be crazy. I'm crazy with hungry. I'm going to eat anything in sight. If you've ever felt that way, it's not ghrelin hunger, it's insulin. It's, I'm hypoglycemic, my sugar is low, the fuel for the brain is getting lower. So then we eat, but we eat too much, we become insulin resistant, and then the whole system is in abeyance. It doesn't work well anymore. What are some cues or, I guess, things that you do with people to get them to understand, like, at what point is that hunger an emergency? (laughs) So if a person is eating natural food, like non-processed food, then their natural hunger cues of just being full kick in. But when you are full and you see extra food or you see Mm -hmm. a dessert, you're full but you're hungry, you know that that's not a real hunger cue. That's insulin and that's now dopamine or something else happening. And when you ask the question, how do we know? I don't want to say once you're damaged, you're damaged forever. But a person who's been eating for a long time really forgets what it's like to be hungry. True. Like true hunger. Because we become so overwhelmed by the um, insulin hunger, the, the famished, ravaged hunger. And the signals are always around us. I mean, it's food is constantly around us. Like we've talked about this before. There's no inappropriate place and time really to be eating anymore. And and so what you're now talking about is the The neurological side. Exactly. So we talked about the hormonal piece. And then we've got the other piece, which is the neurological, the neurochemistry, the dopamine and the dopamine 2 receptor. So when I am full and I walk into a buffet and I see something that's, oh my God, that's really tasty. What's happening is, is my dopamine has now picked up curiosity. Oh, that's good. I, I want to see what that tastes like. And I start to develop a hunger because hunger kicks off dopamine. Like that's a connection in and of itself. So now you're hungry, but it's a dopamine hunger. And that works fine if it's normal food. Because, you know, when you're hungry, you think about food and it works fine. But when you're eating a highly processed food, you're not hungry anymore, but you still want to eat. And I actually think that the neurological hunger is much more powerful than natural hunger because we can mm-hmm. eat until we're stuffed and still want to eat more. You know, you always get people here that saying, you know, well, I'm not really addicted to food. I just love food. 
So whenever you oh. try to ask about the process of it, then, you know, whenever people come to me and they're talking about their weight and how they're frustrated about being obese and that they want to make a change yeah. in lifestyle. And then I say, well, it sounds like you might be addicted or, you know, of course, in psychology, we talk a lot about emotional eating, which is my next yeah. question. If you can, I yes. know that in some of your interviews, you really did talk about food addiction and how is that, is that a food addiction is the same as emotional eating, which is something really big here. I've noticed in my practice yes. is emotional. So the idea is, is that when someone says, well, I'm not really addicted, I just love food. What do you say okay. to people so like this? What I, how I would handle that kind of question is to say that there's a continuum and food by its dopaminergic function, and mm. it's not just dopamine, it also gives serotonin and endorphins. It provides right. the comfort because it is an, a fuel and anything that's good for us feels good. Uh. And when we talk about um, a continuum, first of all, Anything that's a pleasure creates dopamine, but you can eat something and you're not addicted to it, nor are you emotionally in need of it. So that would be at the one end. And then you may have problems, just like if you have a couple of drinks, you have a dessert, you feel a little bit better because it's giving you a neurological band-aid of either endorphin or a combination of a dopamine, endorphin, and serotonin. It doesn't mean that you're addicted to it, you just like it. But when we talk about it becoming an addiction, just like with somebody who's drinking every once in a while just to get to sleep, we're not saying they're an alcoholic yet. It's when there's a, a dependency that be, that becomes developed. And now there's also impairment around. I'm now needing that drink to get to sleep at night, that tub of ice cream to get to sleep at night, or the muffin to get through the morning. I need that, even though I'm sick. So now we've got impairment, we've got dependency, plus the comfort. Then we're moving into that realm of addiction. What is it about the, like the night snacking, I guess, aspect of it? I think people in there, I think nighttime tends to be the most difficult time for people dealing yeah. with that. Is there anything around that behavior wise or what? I think it's a combination both of probably the food that they ate a few hours earlier. They're mm -hmm. now actually having a hypoglycemic crash. You mm -hmm. can't sleep when your uh, fuel is down. You're, you become agitated and irritable. You can't sleep. Plus, this is pure psychology. You develop a pattern of behavior. Yep. At night, I want to be comfortable. I know this food. It's almost like a stimulus response thing. I know that uh, this will help me sleep. Mm -hmm. It becomes a uh, mental crutch to help me fall asleep, which if right. I don't have it, I don't sleep. Right. Sorry, I was going to say talking about mental crutches, just because this question that I have falls right into it. And you talked about in chapter five, the side, effect of, yes. side effects of fructose. Oh, yes. yeah. in the diet and now a lot of people will switch to the diet foods and then they think that's okay because now i'm, I'm doing diet soda but you talk uh -huh. about it in the book that fructose is actually addictive or just as addictive and it has addictive properties in terms of mental and uh physiological i think so if you can dive into that a little bit that would be awesome well uh, fructose is a fruit sugar it's half of a fruit sugar so it's an actual sugar but i think you're meaning the uh, artificial yeah sweet yeah yeah like uh, yeah or yes yes sorry yeah yeah okay yeah so what we're talking about there is neurological hunger like i said earlier i think is more powerful than hormonal hunger but we can mess up just on hormonal but when we have artificial sweeteners we're anticipating the anticipation of sweet uh you eat something it tastes sweet the body responds as if it is sweet and so you end up having a mini euphoric response from the sweetener and if you are green, new, naive to the whole thing, you can probably get away with sweetener. But if you've been eating stuff for a long time, things don't stay the same. 
Addiction is chronic and progressive. The more we eat this stuff, the over time, we're getting worse. And you become trigger happy, even to artificial sweeteners at some point that you might not early on, which is why some people, Dr. D, in your practice may truly just still love food. But I would say that's only a yet. Give them more time in this food environment, and they're going to be back in your uh, couch or chair or office with much more severe problems. It doesn't stay at one place. And sweeteners only contributes to to that process. Yeah, it's true. Plus, by the way, there's research now suggesting that that probably has an insulin effect too that we're not quite sure of, but there's something going on there. I was just going to ask that question too. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we're just on the cusp of that. And you must have seen in the paper, just in the last couple of days, I was just floored by this, the idea about gut flora, that there are some specific gut flora that actually change sugar. We actually metabolize the sugar into alcohol. So the person really does get drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I was making nutrition so awesome and exciting. I think that's what confuses people is that because you can, and we've talked about this with our functional nutritionists before, of the way people metabolize things can be so different. So there isn't necessarily that blanket approach of everybody kind of resolving these issues, especially when we're talking about hormones and the neurological side all mixed together. And that's why I think what we're covering today is going to be a great place for people to start, but everyone's journey is going to be a little bit different and what they find is going to... Yes, and, and that's what I like all the different stories that you have in your book that really, great. really highlights that exactly. Yeah, there's a foundation in place, but yeah. you know everyone's journey is a little bit different. Uh, so, so going back to the initial question, Dr. D, about you know you have people in there that say that it's just comfort, it's just yeah. pleasure. I just love it. I would say that's just the first stage, but it doesn't stay there. Like you have a drink, and after a while, one is just not enough to get the same effect. You're going to need more. Like addiction isn't something that just stays; it's a gradual, progressive thing. I mean, and I think I'm not saying they're going to like that answer. Yeah, they're not yep. going to like it. And I think really, if we can just. I'm sure that you've had a lot of challenges in trying to have people understand that food addiction is just like any other addiction. And I'm sure you've got some people fighting that idea, but really, I mean, it makes sense. Yes. I can see a lot of my patients say, no, I'm not addicted. What are you talking about? That's only drugs and alcohol. You know? Yeah. So there's two things. The people that I see who are more open to my experience, I'll tell you the classic person who's the most open. They're the ones that say, thank you, Vera. I'm so glad that we're talking about this. They're people who have already had bariatric surgery. They've already had it. Mm -hmm. And now they're gaining weight. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more devastating than having gone through that process. And now you're gaining weight again. Yep. They're the ones who are willing to listen. And in other words, they've gone, like, th- there's nowhere else left on the block. Now they have to listen. And right, you know, none he, of the habits have been addressed that got them there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. But how do we get them to listen right when right. they're in your office? Right. That's right. That's the key. Yep. It has to be societal. Yep. And, and you know, right. here, Dr. V, we see it a lot because people do want to go to a quick solution. Somehow yes. there's something about this culture, or maybe it's even this new yeah. generation. And I know that you have talked a lot about this digital world that we live in. So it's isolating Uh people more, which means that they're going to eat by themselves more. So this is happening here, the 21 century, you know, they're using a lot more social media. I have a client, she's 21 years old and she has, Mm -hmm. she's on antipsychotic medication. So it's making her, of course, because I know that it made them gain weight. So it makes her gain weight. All right. So I said to her, Why don't we start you knowing that you're gaining weight? I mean, I've seen her for a year and I've seen her explode in weight. 
So yeah. I say to her, we really got to do something. Why don't we talk about the way you eat? No, she likes all these, you know, all yeah. the pastries. She, she likes all the sweets because it soothes. And you, as you can tell that serotonin and dopamine is down. And then I said, so yeah. do you know what she says to me? It's okay, Dr. D, because now I'm talking to a, a surgeon who's going to who's gonna do the sleeve yeah. and I'm going to 21. And then I said to her, fine, because here what I uh -huh. see, I've seen a lot of patients that have gone through the surgery three years later. I don't know what the mark about three years later, then they've about gained all the weight. And yes. so, so they gain weight here. And I tell her and she's like, no, no, yeah. no. All my problem will be solved. So these are the struggles that having. And yeah. then I'm like, well, if you don't learn how to eat right, it's going to come back. Yes. If I can say one of the things about uh, the antipsychotics and also yes. antidepressants, but more antipsychotics, it's not just that the person gains weight, but they want more sugar. Like it yep. actually uh, changes Very the true. Uh, insulin um, hormonal That's right. fine tuning in such a way that they want to eat that sweet. So it's a physiological drive that um, is imposed upon them by these medications. That's true because high I, she takes yeah. a high dose and the idea yeah. is, is that she does, she craves chocolate all the time. She craves a lot of the sweets, yes. which has made her gain weight. And now she's lost hope. Yes. And I yes. can't exit here because they want a quick fix. And she assumes that this is going to solve her problem yes. because there is no self-control. This is the quick fix that's happened to her. She mm. took the medication and uh, that makes her want to eat, which then makes her crash. She gets lethargic and she gets depressed about herself. So therefore her meds have to go up and she eats more. Mm. It becomes a, a momentum in the wrong yeah. way. That's and the same thing's going to happen with the surgery. I'm sorry to say yep. from my experience. I know because it, I see yeah. it regularly here and unfortunately yeah. and, she's only 21. Uh, about the difference between comfort eating or yes. uh, emotional eating and food addiction. Mm. Also, there's an important distinction. And that is that even if you're eating this food from our Western processed food, it doesn't matter what mood you're in, whether you're happy, sad, glad, mad, it doesn't matter, you're going to want to eat. So you may have started by eating emotionally, but once you're eating this food, emotions become insignificant. You're just eating this food because that's the addiction. It's like I might have started smoking cigarettes because I was a teenager and I wanted to look cool, but at a certain point, it doesn't matter. It's not cool anymore. Right. I, you know, I'm aging and I go whatever it is that the cigarettes do, and I can't quit anymore. And that's what happens with food addiction eventually. And that's the point at which I see people. But you, Dr. D, see them at the beginning of the road, it sounds like. Yes. And, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we could nab the problem in your office? Yep. I'm hoping that you and I can work together to resolve the yes. situation <laughs> because it is very I, I, true. I, I, but this society is societal. very difficult. Yes. yes. Not necessarily societal, but um, familial. Like what we say here. So when people come into where I work, you know, the first thing is offer and what we call an abstinent food plan, which huh. is essentially real food, not uh, without uh, refined sugar and get them eating that. And within three or four weeks, by the way, I don't want to end this podcast without giving a message of hope. Please, I want to add the message of hope in there, which is that you won't crave this stuff yes. if you stop. But anyway, um, so, so we teach people how to not eat that stuff. And they literally feel better by the time they leave. But now the biggest problem is how are they going to go back into the community with the barbecues and the buffets and deal with the family and deal with all that and that's the hardest piece I think of Quaitly. We've kind of touched on before, especially with the family gatherings and holidays. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, we touched on especially in, in Ramadan time, but meals are, if food is entertainment yeah. there, yeah. it is a dry country. So it's less on the you know right. alcoholism side yeah. of the addiction. 
addiction transfer, but it's food is the entertainment and meals are long and drawn out. Mm-hmm. And it is very much a social, mm-hmm. it's a social life for people yes. to, to do yes. that. Um, so we have to infiltrate at that level. I mean, somehow, I don't know how it happened, a probably religious, you say it's a, where you are, it's a dry area. So it's socially acceptable not to drink. In fact, right. it's expected that if we could somehow get, uh, learn from that, not food, but specific foods, toxic foods like sugars and, you know, white flowers and stuff like that to make that... Put it in um, the same category. Yeah, in the same way that we're doing now. um, I don't know about you guys, but the same way that we're doing it now with cigarettes. Like now, you feel like a pariah as a smoker. Mm -hmm. And it was only 10 years ago that it was very acceptable. Well, even in Kuwait, less than that. I think when I moved there in 2014, you could still smoke in the airport and the malls anywhere you wanted to. I mean, it's only been a couple of years where they've kind of you know, push that into their like little smoking tanks you can go in now. Right, right. So that's, that's true. I think it's at that level that that's what we need to do. I think if we can just be able to educate people about sugar. So you mentioned two types of food, which is sugar and flour. But the idea is yes. that I think education, we are a dry country, but we do have drug and rehab units here. So yes. drugs are big here, cocaine, heroin, as you can think because, you know, people have more money here so they can spend more. But the idea is that it's the same struggle, just like an addict when he leaves the rehab and he is going and he's worried about being able to sustain from this drug. It's the same thing. But if we can get people to really understand that this is an addiction, the more we can educate, because obviously in this country, they're realizing that drugs and alcohol is bad for you. And I think we need to find somehow to really do what you are doing and get people to really understand this is an addiction. If I knew I was an addict when I go to these family gathering, I will not touch sugar because it's an addiction. But still people are not understanding the process of addiction. Right. So some of it might be if we can destigmatize the whole concept of addiction yep. so that it's not like, you know, what's wrong with you, Dr. D? Like, That's why, right. What's wrong with you? Yeah. But, but that this is just, well, I'm a diabetic. And I actually think that people who are diabetic actually have more of a tendency to be food addicts. Like I think that the uh, insulin receptor blunting that happens with diabetes, a similar process is happening in the brain with dopamine, which mm-hmm. by, by the way, I haven't really addressed the dopamine thing, which I can if you still want me to. Yes, yes. I yeah, think I a similar to, thing yeah. is happening. So if we could just say, look, I'm a diabetic, I can't have this stuff. And people say, okay, if we could say the same thing, <laughs> look, I'm maybe not, I'm a food addict or I'm a sugar addict, but I can't eat sugar. Yep. It, 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 uh, I'm allergic it to it. Me. It makes me anxious. Yes. Well, essentially, you are allergic to yeah, it. You exactly. have a, a hypersensitive response to sugar. Yes. Yeah. And that's what's hard, I think, is people saying, like, when they say that I can't have something, yes. it automatically goes that restrictive mindset. And then the more it's restricted, the more you think, like, God, I, I really want that thing. And so yes. one of the, the things, the language around it yes. that I've kind of worked with people yes. on, too, is, is understanding what it does to you and how it makes you feel. And rather than yes. saying, I can't have that thing, I'm choosing, I'm choosing not to because I don't want to get sick. Exactly. Yeah. It's just understanding the impact that it's going to have and kind of changing the language around it. As yeah. soon as you say, I'm choosing not to yeah. have it, now it's a little bit more yeah. of the responsibility. Yeah. Sugar you makes know, me I anxious. know how this makes me feel rather than I can't and someone else told me it's yeah. bad for me. No. You know, Sugar makes me like anxious it. and I don't want to be anxious. Sugar right. makes me depressed and I don't want to be depressed. Exactly. Now, uh, I, yes. I have another science question. I don't know. For some reason, I'm the geek. <laughs> Usually Meg's the geek on the show. It's like... I would think I should be the one asking these questions. I know, but I've geeked out on your book. 
weeks ago. <laughs> and I read okay. a couple of articles too. And okay. in recent readings over the past few months, I've read some things that are saying that type three diabetes, yes. there's a link to dementia and Alzheimer's, I think. That's right. So we've talked yeah. about this before, I think, in the episode yeah. with the researchers from Australia when we talked about diabetes, I think, with that. Yes, yes. We talked Yep. From your medical opinion, is the link there yet? Because right now in Kuwait, we're seeing a huge influx in dementia, especially. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know at least 10 households where they have yeah. an elder family member that has been stricken wow. by dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah. And it's just blown up ever since the after the Gulf yeah. War. And I'm not saying that it has to do with the Gulf War and whatever chemicals were used or whatever. But that's uh-huh. when the real introduction of Western food started to come into Kuwait. Yeah, and I, I'm more inclined to think that uh, sugar is the neurotoxin that will yeah. lead to uh, Alzheimer's and uh, mm-hmm. maybe even uh, Parkinson's, certainly mood disorders. But is the science there? I think there is science there, but is it reliable enough? I don't think we're at that stage. It's mm-hmm. strongly suggested. It's correlational. I don't know if it's causational yet. But those of us in the field are willing enough to say this looks very much like there is a causation, but we can't say that that's for sure the case. Mm. But I am prepared to say that it's a neurotoxin sugar and that it, nothing else, it causes mood disorder and it causes addiction to other things, not just sugar, but other things. So here's the, let me talk a little bit about that dopamine uh. two thing that, that you had asked earlier. When we understand addiction, there are more neurochemicals than just dopamine, but that's the one that's been studied the most. So you can understand a lot just on looking at that level. We know that hunger creates a dopamine rush. I mean, it's, it's connected to dopamine. We also know that sugar, cocaine, other drugs also create an influx of dopamine. We know that just anticipating, in other words, a sweetener, can cause a dopamine rush. In normal life, dopamine is meant to get me through the day to just appreciate a conversation like we're having. I'm not supposed to be on uh, way out in the Netherlands exploding into, I don't know, basically the extraordinary thanks to sugar. Just like insulin receptors, it's the constant bombardment of sugar and whatever, high stimulation. Then if I don't have anything, I get flat. I'm depressed. Mm. Yeah. Now I got an emotional problem. I think chapter eight, sorry, you went through some of the withdrawal symptoms and post-acute withdrawal symptoms. That's the one thing I took from the book. So when we talk about addiction, we acknowledge that there is with any syndrome, any addiction, there is a withdrawal. Whatever extraordinary experience you have, the body adapts to that to make it normal. And then when you stop it, you need that stuff to feel normal. And now you don't have it. And so now you're going to feel the opposite. So the opiate person has no pain and they're sedated and they're constipated, stop the opiate, and now they have diarrhea and they're feeling full of pain and extremely depressed. This is the opposite. Sugar, you get that buzz of whatever it is that you get. You stop that and it's the irritability. I can't sleep. My fuel is coming down. It's even to the point where the person is shaking, is sweating, can't sleep, diarrhea the next day. Now that's extreme. That's somebody who's probably binged all night. But it is what we see happening once you get to the end of the spectrum with food addiction. And, you know, we can ask people who don't believe in food addiction. They'll say there is no withdrawal syndrome. But you ask anybody who's been eating this way for a while and they will say, yes, it takes about a week before I feel 
back to normal. Again. I know for myself, it was a lot of like headaches and like brain yes. fog and that kind of stuff in the beginning exactly. when I detoxed from sugar. Yes. And then that's how I've talked about this before. That's how I found the link between sugar and my arthritis. Yes. And yes. I don't have to deal with arthritis medications or anything like that now from wow. paying attention. I mean, obviously I still, there's sugar in some fruit and some natural sugars and things like that. But when you had uh, the withdrawal, how was yeah. your emotion? Oh, I was grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> I was very irritable, very grumpy. And how long did that last? It was about a week. It was about, about it was week. about a week. It was yeah. kind of, we called that phase like getting off the crack is how yes. we just, the group that I did it with. And that's how we yes. kind of described it. Yes. It was just, it took about a week and then the mental clarity and things kind of came after that exactly. and then just healing better in the joints. Yes. So it does, it does happen. And I think this is the part with people who deal with kids and that's a hard phase for when you're yes. trying to, you know, go through a family change, maybe and making behavior change all around is that the kids I mean, their emotions are way more escalated than what we feel. And they're way more irritable and up and down and the aches and all that kind of stuff. But they get through it. All that. We call that attention deficit disorder. Right, That's exactly. Right. I, I call it a sugar right. high. Yes. <laughs> I just call it yeah. what it Which is. I say, yeah. I say my But it son. does. It gets labeled as a ADD. Yeah, yeah. Or ADHD, yes. We yep. give them stimulant medication, which That's suppresses right. appetite. Right. And then they right lose their cue of what's hunger and what isn't hunger. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, it's, it's frustrating. frustrating. We That's have true. talked a lot about like the sugar aspect of it, but there's still, I, I encounter some clients sometimes that they are eating what is considered a re- relatively whole food diet, you know, paleo mm-hmm. diet, but they will still overeat large amounts. So they're, they're eating, you know, less of the processed things. They're eating more of a, what we consider a healthy diet, but they still have a struggle with just controlling portions or, you know, how much they eat in that time. Is that still considered like a, an emotional eating? Is that considered an addiction or where does that kind of fall on the spectrum? If it's not so much of the sugar that they're trying to detox yeah. from, it's just food in general or meal yeah. size or, you know, things like I that. Would, I would need to know more information, but the, the thought that comes to mind is, how carb sensitive are they? Mm-hmm. And I do think that some cultures are more carb sensitive than others. Like, you know, here in Canada and America, our Aboriginal populations are so carb sensitive that they look at toast and they've got diabetes. I mean, it's just the insulin spikes just looking yeah. at the thing. I mentioned that yeah. earlier when we first started that there are some new products coming out on the scene. One of them is the Lumen. And I really don't care to mention brands, but They've advertised as they can tell if you're, you're carb sensitive by you blow yes. into it and it gives you a reading. Can you talk about that a little bit? The science behind that? Is it? Is there any fact behind it? Is it legit or is it just kind of a marketing ploy? I would have to say I don't know because I don't know that product. I'm going to claim ignorance, but I'm going to give you a thought. If they're using the concept that what we're essentially measuring is insulin sensitivity, which would be the same as saying carb sensitive, it has logical thinking behind it. But we all know that something that's logical thinking doesn't necessarily mean that the product I have is truly measuring that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a bit like the Fitbit thing, you know, when people are all those steps, you're somehow making the implication that you're having a healthy lifestyle. Not necessarily, not if you're eating muffins all the time. (laughs) Um, I don't actually know if the promise delivers, but I think what they're saying makes sense. And that's probably how they're selling it is by its logic. You know, you have tried to distinguish between eating disorder and uh, addiction of food. So I wanted to see, can you help me understand what you think? Because a lot of the things you talk about as the addiction of food kind of fits into the purging. Some anorexia, some bulimia, but the purging part, it does because they're overeating. And Meg was just talking about people that are overeating. The idea is that when, you know, so someone that can come into my office And if I don't know enough about addiction or food, I would say that they would be in those three categories of eating disorder. Yes. 
you're asking me a question that is the bane of our existence. Like this is the biggest struggle. And if anybody uh, could answer it, they'd get the Nobel Prize in <laughs> dietary. <laughs> um, let me go back, to Meg, to your question first, and then I'm going to go to your the um, what is it about the person who's volume eating? Like, are they eating grains? Maybe it's healthy food for most people, but they can't eat some of the more complex carbs that like they can't eat potatoes where most people still could, or they can eat grains like quinoa and rice where others could. And that might still be driving the addiction because they're so carb sensitive. That's a possibility. The other possibility is now we're moving into Dr. D's area is that if the person has been eating problematically for a long time, they start to develop addictive food behaviors like just volume eating. I don't care what it is. I'm just eating a lot. That's um, true. Which then be, looks a lot, an awful lot like a binge disorder. And now to answer your question, uh, I have no, the tools that we have to measure food addiction are highly sensitive. They will pick up food addiction and they will pick up eating disorder, but they are not specific. I mm. cannot rule one or the other out. It's very frustrating. And it's the reason why we can't get this condition acknowledged because people will just say it's an eating disorder. The best that we have is that there is somebody in Sweden now who's um, bitten Johnson, who's working on a tool to make a distinction. But the way that we do it now is if the person like you, Meg, stopped eating a particular thing and had a response of uh, food serenity after three weeks, yeah. just because of the food you've changed, not anything else, and you feel quiet, then I'm going to say that that is a strong signifier of food addiction. Whereas somebody with an eating disorder, it only makes it worse because mm-hmm. the restrictions, what will feel restrictive will just feel like ongoing eating disorder behavior. It's almost like whatever solution works, that's going to help me give the diagnosis. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, yes. It's an unfortunate way because we're working from the back going forward. It would be much better to have something at the very beginning. If anyone's looking for a PhD topic, that's it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> but Dr. V, yeah. why do we need to distinguish it? Why can't we put it with the eating disorder? I mean, people might ask you that. Why do you want to bring okay. in another li- another diagnosis? Okay. Because, well, that and that is essentially what um, Health Canada says and the uh, DSM-5, mm. the committee, said when food addiction proponents came and said, here's a disorder, please accept us. The DSM-5 committee said, I'm sorry, there's, how is this different than binge eating? And we don't need anything. We got binge eating. But we would say that it's very important to make a distinction because in the eating disorder model, it is almost 100% to learn how to eat normally, like the way that my family eats and my society eats, uh, but in moderation. And a food addict cannot do that. It's the same as if you quit smoking cigarettes. I cannot just have one cigarette on the weekend if I was a -a pack-a-day smoker before. If I wasn't, maybe I could. But if I was a -a pack-a-day smoker or a -a bottle-a-day wine drinker, I can't just have one drink on the weekend. It's only going to make me want to have more. The principle about food addiction being... Once that dopamine receptor has been kindled, primed to have that heightened response to sugar, the moment the sugar enters, it inflames the whole system. And what does that feel like when the system is inflamed? It's the term of what we call the phenomena of craving. I crave more sugar. What is that? That's dopamine. What's actually happening is a dopamine spike, but I experience that dopamine spike by I want more sugar. I didn't until I had this hot chocolate, but now I want a piece of cake with the hot chocolate. And then I go home tonight, and now I want the ice cream that I used to have. All of that is dopamine that is hypersensitive response to one little thing. So 
eating disorder says the treatment for eating disorder is learn how to have a little piece of cake once a day. A food addiction would say no, never, no cake no ever more. again. <laughs> yeah, but not with yeah. you know, not with the sense of restriction, but with the sense of freedom. Right. Well, thank you very much. So I guess you're saying that addiction of food has the specific, which we're talking about sugar, but also yeah. how it really kindles the dopamine receptors. That's what you're saying. Yes. So, And then you're saying that even though eating disorder in general, they especially the purge eating, I mean, we're talking about the same kind of neurotransmitters, the dopamine, yes. serotonin. We have we the are. same thing, but you're saying that they are activated in a different way. Yes. Now, now some of us will say, I'm not so sure that we're activated in a different way. Okay. I'm more inclined to say, and some of us, here's where there's many different PhD theses, you know, um, <laughs> some of us would say, like me, that the eating disorder is actually an earlier phase of, uh, of a later yeah. stage food addiction. The eating disorder can still do a little bit and they'll struggle and they'll get the comfort, but they can moderate, but they haven't moved along because we see that happening. People end up saying, hi, I'm Vera, I'm a food addict and a bulimic, both. Mm, that's but true. really the fundamental difference is it's about the physiology of introduce the food, sparks up the uh, desire, what we call the phenomena of craving. And then you're lost. That's and true. that phenomenon of craving could translate into just eating behavior, like volume addiction. Right. You said this in some of your interviews that people really need to understand whatever it is that they're addicted to. If they stop their addiction, everything gets back. And then you also say that a lot of times, like when people stop their addiction, and I don't work a lot with substance abuse, but I'm sure that you've had patients where they say somehow when they stop their addiction, their brain even goes to norm. And for food addiction, I've heard you say that, you know, if we can help people understand it only takes three to four weeks or one month. Yes. The message of hope is that if you stop the addictive foods, and that doesn't mean you can't stop eating tasty food, mm. you can still really enjoy your food. It's just you stop eating the uh, highly processed flour and sugar and those kinds of foods. After the withdrawal, which lasts a week to two, you actually go back to just enjoying regular food. Yes. I had another question about the book. It was probably my favorite story okay. in the book. One of them was uh, your story, which I thought was extremely fascinating. And uh, you talked about it on a recent podcast also of how you realized that you uh -huh. had an addiction to food when you were working yes. at a senior citizen home, if uh -huh. I believe, right? That's if right. I'm not mistaken. And then the other story I <laughs> yes. wanted you to, I was hoping you could dive into both of these stories a little bit and just kind of give like a, a snippet of them was uh, Lawrence's story, the food addict and heroin uh -huh. addict. And like I said, that broke my heart because in Kuwait, yeah. we have a huge heroin problem yes. that no one talks about. Yep. And oh. there's a huge heroin problem yeah. in the United States. It's, yes. I think it's a yes. global mess right now. Mm -hmm. So can you dive into both of those stories a little bit to give our listeners an idea of how this book is? Because it's not a geeky science book. It's actually got some real life stories in there. Actually, well, it's an easy I, read. I start with um, my story in there because I feel like my story is, is so common with the young woman in university who is worried about her weight. You know, I probably wasn't that, but I thought I was and uh, started to fool around with the foods that I was eating, thinking that I, I had to cut my calories because I believed in the model of calories in, calories out. Of course, I'm going to save the favorite ones, which are the sugars, <laughs> and just eat those and not eat the other stuff. And before I knew it, I became um, obsessed, absolutely obsessed 24-7 thinking about food. And 
my guess is that that probably the quickness of that, because that took two, three years to get there, was probably because I have a, a family history of alcoholism and my mother was an alcoholic. And I think that I probably had receptors that were not necessarily addictive personality, but addictive genes. So there it was waiting to happen. And I wanted to use my example because I didn't feel like I was the typical addict, the stigma of that. I was just a regular university person who now in anything that I did, school, relationships, going to a movie, what was first on my mind was, could I eat or how much did I have to burn off so I could eat later? And then it was like this nest of bees in front and then everything else was there. And I was navigating that, but the bees of those thoughts were in front of me. And it wasn't until 30 years later of trying to manage this that uh, because I'm an, I became an addictions doctor that I thought, okay, I'm going to treat this like an addiction and just stop it. Stop the sugar and see what happens. And that nest was gone in, in a number of months. It was like, oh my God, what took me so long? Well, I didn't know. And so now I'm on this campaign to talk about this. Lawrence was uh, an example of a fellow that I met. He was a real patient that I was seeing. I work at a treatment center, but I also had a small practice of opiate addicts and and we were giving a methadone. And he was somebody who's quite obese and had been a heroin addict for years. And not everybody uh, who's a heroin addict, you know that they are. What he did is he would have customers and with those customers that he would sell to, he would get enough for himself by selling a bit more than he had to pay for. And that was how he was able to be a art dealer and all sorts of things that he was, along with being a sort of functional heroin addict, first from New York and then came to Toronto uh, for a number of years. But then he got heavier and heavier and was not able to get out very much. He ended up being and having less patients or pardon me, less customers, and therefore more in need of heroin because he couldn't afford it as much. And I think he managed by eating more and using less, using less heroin, like almost like a kind of juggling act until he finally got to a place where he had, I think, three or four customers that gave him just enough heroin so that he wouldn't be sick. But now he was morbidly obese. I mean, I guessed him to be in the 400 plus, but he could have been more. He was to the point where he couldn't get out of bed anymore. He had somebody uh, rig up an iron thing that he had to hang on to. So he could literally pull himself over to the pail where he would go to the bathroom. And then he had uh, somebody that was staying there to help him. So he had to stop his uh, opiate use and uh, he would do that with methadone. So I would come and give him the methadone. And I thought, let's deal with the food thing at the same time. So we got him off the opiates, but we never managed to get him off the food. And because he was so heavy, I think I was only seeing him for about a year until he finally had a heart attack. And he told me he had a a number of times where he had chest pain and what was clearly signs that you should be going to the eMERGE because of angina. But he wouldn't go because he was so embarrassed. I mean, he was too big to go in a regular ambulance. Like it would have required, uh, you know, extra effort. And, And I mean, that's really his story. Somebody who started his addiction with opiates and then it ended up being, um, well, basically food. He did not die of an opiate addiction. He died of his, uh, basically a heart attack, but they say that that was food addiction. Wow. Wow. The significance of adding some of these stories to your book, was that just to kind of relate to the readers a little bit more? Yes. So that what I really wanted was that uh, when somebody read that, that they would go, that 
makes sense? Because you say food addiction and people go, what? I'm not addicted to food. You know, like your experience, Dr. D, what are you talking about? (laughs) But when you read it, it's like, well, wait a minute. I can relate to that. And also to give some compassion to, like, I think that uh, part of the reason why we uh, don't see food addiction or sugar addiction as as extreme, when I see a crack addict uh, on the street, well, you know, I'm walking by them. They're, you know, on a laying by a vent, uh, you know, with cardboard boxes, it's yes. visible. Food addiction at its end stage, there are people that are up in their their attic or, or their third floor, they're shut-ins. They're having people deliver food to them, their pizzas or whatever. They don't go out anymore uh, and then they die. We don't see that extreme. And I wanted people to see that it's like this thing that's just below our consciousness. We know it's there. We're not really willing to look at it, but it's there and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And once in a while we see, oh, heart attack, diabetes. Well, there's a lot of diabetes now, but we don't see that the beast is actually addiction. Mm, And um, true. I wanted people to see different views of that addiction so they could go, oh, yeah, that could be me. You know, I think these stories, especially knowing knowing that you had a food addiction, because sometimes you get people writing books or are expert in certain areas. Not that everyone should have personal experience in the area they study, but mm-hmm. I feel like it in your book, it really made it so real because this is someone that calls herself a food addict, is in recovery. And so when you use those terminology, actually, I want to confess to you, I think after I read this, I think I have a food addiction or had. Uh, Now I Uh I work out. (laughs) Now I work out. But talking about when I was in college, I had similar situations. So I felt like, wow, I wish somebody then would have told me I had food addiction. Of course, three years ago, I changed my lifestyle. I work out. I exercise. I don't eat sugar. I look great for for myself. I mean, if you knew me three years ago and you see me, you don't recognize me. So when I read your story, I thought, wow, this is really me. I could relate. And I felt like it's so nice to read a book from someone that already was there versus someone else that wasn't there. And is just talking about it in a more hypothetical, you know, research way. So I really appreciate your honesty. That was amazing. Yeah. I thank you for saying that. And I really wrestled with bringing myself in like that because it's a little bit embarrassing, yeah. um, some of the stories that I told. And then in the end, I thought, you know, wh- what have I got to lose? It's just ego, you know, yes, and for true. God's sakes, if it makes a difference. So, so to you, it you it, it spoke to you. Oh, it did. And I, I thank you for telling me that because yeah. it makes it worthwhile. Because, you know, it is a bit embarrassing. But the more you and I and others speak about this, the more we destigmatize this thing. Well, and I think that's like the hard thing, especially like Dinka in your field, you know, working with mindset and things. It's like, you're human. You still struggle yep. with yeah, you that's know, right. that's decisions right, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's like, I'm in the health field and I still struggle. Like, it's still a conscious decision, you know, yep. with food and behaviors and habits and stuff sometimes. So it's just, yes, it does make us relatable. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm a health coach, but I'm not the health coach that has like the six pack and that oh. has, you know, like this picture perfect <laughs> body that people think they're supposed to have. And to me, I, I hope that makes me more relatable because yeah. we've talked about this before, like chasing the abs and like what that sacrifice comes from and, you know, yes. is it really worth it? But I think on all these fronts of like you being a doctor and holding a PhD, like people probably think like, oh, it just must be so easy for yeah. her to, to know and understand all of this. But it's been a work in progress. It's been years of experience. And I think that's the benefit to all of us. And Maddie, too, with your history of being you know, overweight and smoking and overcoming all that kind of stuff, like it... Mm. It, people just need to understand that that's human. That doesn't make you a bad person because you've had this experience on your timeline. What are you going to be able to do with that experience? Yeah. 
That's true. Uh, one last point, I think, before we kind of wrap up, and I'm stealing one of Dr. Dinka's questions. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, and it was about exercise. She actually reminded me about this point in the book that you brought right. up about supplementing yeah. the addiction to exercise and, you know, being like, oh, and we hear this in CrossFit. I'm a CrossFitter. I hate to say okay. it, but I am. And okay. we hear it all the time. I'm doing the wad for the food or the cheat meal wad, as they call it. Uh, right, Meg? You can relate yeah. to that. So now how do you get away from if you kick your addiction to food and then you become addicted to exercise because you're going to fry your central nervous system and you're just going to uh, keep going down this dangerous rabbit hole. So uh -huh. you talk about that in the book a little bit and you seem like you kind of stay away from the exercise model or the fitness industry model, which the fitness industry is crap anyways. Let's be realistic. <laughs> it's full of lies yeah. and cheats yeah. and snake oil yes. salesmen. But so yeah. if you can dive into that a little bit, that would be great. I probably avoided it because I did what so many other people did. I uh, did a ton of exercise to basically, you know, be able to have that little extra. Because remember, when I was living in this 30 years of wandering in the wilderness, basically, of uh, trying to manage how much can I eat? How much do I have to burn off? I mean, I would run an hour a day and then I would, I had a gym downstairs. And so that when I stopped eating the food, it was like, I'm not doing that exercise thing. So I, I got out of it that way. I encourage exercise now because one of the things that happens when you stop eating this food is you get a ton of energy that you didn't have before. Yeah. And the actual pleasure of walking and climbing and running and biking is comes back. Like it's like when you're a little kid and you enjoy that stuff again. I did not enjoy running and doing that hour of exercise in the basement to lose the uh, however many pounds. I think that probably people can use exercise as an addiction too, but that wasn't my story. So I can't really speak to that. I'll be happy to listen to you if you want to share. You know, you probably have lots of stories of people who have come to you. I think that uh, the idea is that you also mentioned social support. So not to remove, I mean, there are lots of people like, for example, anorexic, which, you know, they, what yeah. they do is they're obsessed with food, but they're trying to stay away from food. So they'll obsess yeah. over exercising. You know, I had patients yeah. like they'll work out two or three times. I have students. I also teach at a university here where, you know, yeah. the whole time they're spending time is chewing gum, drinking water, and they're in the gym at the university, maybe yeah. two hours. Yeah. So there's an obsession yeah. about it. You're right. But I mean, and then sometimes yeah. people like, well, it's better than eating. So at least I'll spend most of my time in the gym. Which, you know, yeah, yeah. again, it's but like it's, running it's, away. They're in denial of a problem. Is they're facing yeah. it, they're running away to something else. And then it's not even that they're in denial of the problem, but they're still obsessed about something. And that's right. such an unhappy that's place to be. That's you know, true. In a way of wrapping up here, what I'd like to suggest is this is not about restricting. This is about liberating. Yeah, that's liberating right. Liberating from this obsession that's to right. lose weight, burn off the calories, and, you know, what can I eat that I can feel okay on? It's like freedom from all of that. That's and, right. And that freedom can be achieved within three weeks. It's That's not even right. like years. That's it's right. It's three weeks. But the rest of life is going to be, how can I protect that? Because That's I'm living in a society that doesn't understand. Right. But, but if you really explain to them that after three weeks, you are going to be free from the yes. mood disorders. You're going to be free yes. from being tired all the time. You are going to be free of this unhappiness. You'll be a happy person. Like I, I, share, I share my story. I mean, when I was overweight, even though I've yeah. always been active and really worked very hard, but still it was a push. Now I wake up, I'm excited when my trainer comes. I'm excited for yeah. the day. 
you have a different type of energy. And I use myself. I mean, you know, I tell, yes. tell them my stories because they need to know that I'm not just giving them this because I am a psychologist, but because I'm human and this happened to me. Yes. yes. And you want to share this. That's uh, right. Yeah. And so, you know, you have the experience. I mean, it gives us the passion that we have yeah, to uh, right. withstand the response, to be able to withstand and to continue on mm-hmm. and uh, preach this message. It only takes three or four weeks. Yes. It's not just three or four weeks of mood. It's like within six months, half of your weight will be gone. That's I mean, right. I lost a hundred pounds and I've kept it off. Like, yes. like that's great news. That's right. Not that's right. in three weeks, but you know, in a year. That's right. Great. Like you will have a new life. Yeah. Mm. I think that's the difference is that it's, you're able to keep it off. Whereas the diet culture and the fitness industry yes. kind of depend on you putting it back on the cycle back in and the addiction industry yes. as well. You know, diet, that, and the so, bariatric culture, yeah. the surgery culture. Totally. totally. So I think that's amazing. I think we've covered so many great things that are going to help people just understand that there is light at the end tunnel and give them that little ray of hope. Yeah. Um, I think it would be cool if people listening to this, if they had, you know, follow-up questions or anything that, you know, is still confusing on the addiction and eating disorder that, you know, maybe we could bring you on for a part two or something sure. of this. Cause I just think this topic can't be discussed enough. I, well, I, I'm know, so thrilled from, to be from Kuwait and over to our side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a problem. I mean, this, this is such a thrill to be speaking, you know, across the across the world like this. Like, really, Maybe I'm so delighted. Doctor V, we're thinking of <laughs> bringing you here. Yeah, yeah Doctor V. We, yeah, we want you to come and do a talk for a lot of people, and you know, people do uh, speak yeah, English yeah. here, so it'd be nice if you can come and talk yeah. about your book in person. So, I hope you're well, open. I hope you're open to coming to Kuwait. As long as I don't have to eat the food. (laughs) Besides your book. We have some good food. Besides your book and and the podcast and things, are there any other places or do you have any like upcoming webinars or any upcoming, you know, workshops or things around that you speak at or what are other ways that people can? I think it's best if I just send you my uh, website. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got all those links. I can put them all in the show notes, like without a doubt, definitely. Dr. Vera, thank you so much. I think this was a great episode. We'd love to definitely have you again, and I'll probably get some more sciencey questions so I can geek out a little bit more than Meg this time. I mean, she was asking all the fluffy questions. I got a psychologist and someone asking fluffy stuff. I don't know what to do. We wanted you to be. If you're going to ask me geeky stuff, send it ahead. Like that that Lumen thing, then I could look that up. Yeah, I'll send you the link. I saw that the other day on Instagram. It was the weirdest yeah. thing. And I don't, Meg, have you yeah. seen it? I, I don't haven't. know if it's I just in Kuwait, it. but I saw it here. I've heard about them before. Um, I haven't used it, but I've heard that there are ones. And it's kind of interesting, actually, even with your Fitbit, you can look at like after eating something like a piece of cake or taking a bite and watching your heart rate change. Oh, on your oh wow. See, I've done it with yeah. HRV. I've, I've done like it with that. the yeah. chest strap. I've done it with the legit chest strap and the HRV. Oh. And you can actually tell. And they give you complete instructions okay. like 20 minutes after you eat, and I was obsessed at one point with recovery oh. and waking up at four o'clock in the morning to take my HRV before <laughs> I started my day. And then I was doing it after meals and yeah. chicken. And I told Meg about this. She knows but you my know what? This might chicken. not be a bad idea because if people are conscientious about their heart rate and how yeah. high their insulin, maybe they will because it's, yeah. then they will be more scared and being scared, maybe it'll help them stop these foods. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could work. Well, well, thank you so much. For <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. Thank you, thank Dr. You, Dr. V. Dr. It was great Have talking a great to day. you. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, 
please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.